Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon, church. Everyone, I'd love you to open your Bible if you have one. If you have a church Bible, I think we're on page 663 or similar. We're in Daniel chapter 2. And once you get it open, I'd encourage you to keep it open and, uh, and, and have it in front of you because we are going to go through all of Daniel chapter 2 this afternoon before the end of the service. So fasten your seatbelts and get ready for takeoff. I wonder, have you ever been caught off guard thinking that something is going to last forever? And then you're taken by surprise whenever it doesn't. And so growing up in the 90s, uh, I was and still am an avid Manchester United supporter. Does, does anyone recognize that, that Man United kid at the back? I see a few hands shaking. Wonderful. Amen. Fantastic, guys. I'm going to be looking at you as I, as I preach. I probably started supporting him because they were a wonderful team back then, so I'm, I'm probably a bit of a fake. But nevertheless, for, ne- for nearly 15 years, they were undisputedly the best team in the English Premier League, they, and they conquered Europe as well. And so it was amazing. They, they had power, they had dominance over every other club in their league. But yet in the mid-2000s, the dominance and the power began to wane a little bit. It began to waver. And as a fan, for me, this began to give way to the, the emotion of fear because I knew that the good times were soon to be over. It had been so good, what had started so stable and so secure suddenly was not so. And so whatever I thought was firm was actually, in fact, Uh, futile and fragile. And I want to tell you that I'm in good company today, not because I'm standing with you, but because I'm in good company with the king of Babylon that we'll read about in Daniel chapter 2 called Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the most important man of of, of his day. He was literally number one in the world. And if there's going to be somebody with power, he he was the one with unrivaled power. And this, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to issue a decree today that we're going to see that is going to make other people, or he's going to put other people to death because they cannot tell him a dream that he has dreamt. So here's a guy with power, but here's also a guy with fear. The most important man in the world will find out that he is as temporary as his kingdom is. So we're going to see today in Daniel chapter 2, the big picture is that God's kingdom is eternal while all other kingdoms will fall. We're going to see God reveals the futility of investing in worldly kingdoms for selfish gain, the fragility of human power to secure a future. And then the firm foundation of God's eternal kingdom means we can serve in a temporary kingdom. And so that's going to be the crux of today's talk. And so what is the context? Chapter one, over the last two weeks, Steve has taken us through, begins with an international crisis. The, the, The people of Judah have been carried off from Jerusalem into Babylon. They've been taken into exile. And so what started off as an international crisis of these people have been, been captured and taken, and it moves on to a personal crisis. Daniel was part of that group. He was part of the, the professionals and the elites taken from Jerusalem, brought into Babylon. And the personal crisis is, what is he going to say yes to and what is he going to say no to? And that, from Daniel chapter 1, we can see Daniel gave three yeses and he gave one no. So it started with an international crisis, it ends with a personal crisis. Today, chapter 2 is the other way around. It begins with a personal crisis and it ends in the world, the stage of world history. So it's going to begin with a personal crisis, and we're going to see that's with Nebuchadnezzar, and it ends up 
in this stage of world history. I don't want to give it away just yet. So let's jump into the text. So if you've got a Bible, please get it open. We're going to be starting off in Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. And the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut to pieces and your houses turned to piles of rubble. Wow, what an outcome for these guys. It's bad enough having to interpret the dream, never mind actually try to tell the king what he was already dreaming. And so it's only the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He's the most powerful man in the world, but yet he's still fresh. He's still new to it. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't yet stamped his authority. He hadn't yet secured his legacy. He hadn't built up his own personal prestige and hadn't built up his own stature as, as a new leading world power. He's only two years into it. And here the most powerful man on planet Earth is plagued by insecurities and fears that are masquerading as troublesome dreams and sleepless nights. I wonder if you ever had uh, troublesome dreams and sleepless nights that are maybe uh, covering an insecurity or a fear. If so, you're in good company. So does Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon is shaken as he changes out of his PJs in the morning. So he calls an advisory committee, a group of magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, a team of experts in dream interpretation. And they needed these because... In the ancient Near East, dreams were typically seen to be messages from gods, small g. So if you're going to be the king of Babylon, if you're going to be the king, number one man in the world, uh, you need a team of these guys around you because these are the guys that bring you the messages from all the gods, small g. And it's only as we get to verse 5 that we begin to see the problem. The problem now no longer lies in Nebuchadnezzar and his sleepless nights. The problem lies at the feet at the, of the astrologers because they're going to be put to death if they can't uh, tell the king what the dream was. And if you remember from chapter one, and if you've got a Bible, turn back to the page. This now also includes Daniel and his friends. Chapter one, verse 20 says, in, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. So this isn't just an issue on the astrologers and co. This is also an issue that's going to affect Daniel and his four friends. And the thing is, they're only a year into service, so they've trained for three years under the king, and now they're only a year into the service, and they're going to be killed. They're going to be put to death. Because the king, a seeming madman with deep insecurities and fears, wanted his dream not only interpreted, but also told back to him. What is God doing? Why would God allow them to go through all of this from being carried from Jerusalem into Babylon, put through three years of training, and put into a high position beside the king, only to have them killed a year later? And so the astrologers and co. tried to buy a little bit of time, but knowing full well that they couldn't interpret a dream that they hadn't yet been told. So we pick up in verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing 
of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. And look at verse 11. This is key. This is crucial to the whole text. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. Why does the writer want us to hear that? Their words are the confession that paganism is in fact dead. This is nothing more than a religious cul-de-sac. It takes you nowhere. It can give you no sure word from the outside. It's a dead-end street without a God who discloses what the future holds. And so the astrologers and co all worshipped false pagan gods. But ultimately, these gods were dead. They were useless. They were unable to provide special revelation whenever it was needed the most. This committee of advisors were actually revealing their own shortcomings or the shortcomings of their own religion. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among the humans. Wow. We're going to see that these gods, small g, are in fact dead. They hold no power, and they don't even exist. They can't provide any special revelation. And it begs the question today, is there such thing as revelation? Can God break in and interact with humanity? You know, in chapter 1, God delivers the king of Israel into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. We see in chapter 1 God's activity. Later in chapter 1, it says God causes the king's official to show favor to Daniel and his friends. And then it goes on to say God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and understanding and the ability to interpret dreams and visions. Church, I want to tell you this. God is, has actively been shown in Daniel chapter 1 and now into Daniel chapter 2 that he is in control and no earthly kingdom can obscure him and his ways. Amen. Amen. The hope for Daniel is that the God of heaven and earth can hear his people and act on, his, on their behalf. And do you believe that today? That the God of heaven and earth can hear his people and act on their behalf. And so yet here the, the astrologers are telling the king that their pagan gods, who are no gods at all, uh, can provide no help in the matter. And in fact, it actually merely reveals that the astrologers and co were, were really looking out for number one. The king Nebuchadnezzar was looking out for his own agenda. He was trying to secure his future. He's worried about this dream. And the astrologers and sorcerers and whatnot are looking out for their own agenda. They, they want to they be close to the king. But now it's all come up short and they've been caught out and death awaits for them. So Nebuchadnezzar has deep insecurities about his own kingdom. The astrologers and co have in mind the maintenance of their own kingdom. Everyone's looking out for number one. And you know, it'd be really, really easy for you and I to, to think of ourselves as a Daniel in this story. We haven't yet heard from Daniel, but, but these guys aren't good, so no doubt we're the good guys. We're going to be the Daniel. But it wouldn't be all that unfair to consider that often we're more like Nebuchadnezzar and the astrologers trying and fighting to secure our own earthly kingdoms. Invest in, in what's in front of us for our own selfish gain. Investing in, in what's in front of us for our own security, for our own satisfaction, for our own pleasure. Maybe, maybe that's a job, perhaps that's a title. Maybe it's, it's getting a, a, a certain grade at, at college. Perhaps it's in a relationship quick reality check will, will show that there is no need to be awed by earthly kingdoms, despite their pleasure and their trappings, because they're ultimately empty and they're ultimately dark, and they will fail to provide us what we are asking for them. I want to tell you this. If you put your hope in, in your college degree, if you put your hope in your money, if you put your hope in a relationship, each of these things and thousands more will fail to provide what you're asking of them. 
So we pick up in verse 12. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, and look at these words, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Spoke to them with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel, and at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Do you notice Daniel has no idea what he is stepping into? Daniel hadn't yet been told about the dream. It is all an act of faith. Daniel knew that his own life and the lives of his friends and the Babylonian wise men were in jeopardy. If he could meet the king's unreasonable request and high expectations, then he and all the others would be spared. The thing is, there was no way for Daniel to even discern what the dream was, let alone interpret it. We're told in chapter 1 that that his interpretation skills were 10 times better than the magician's. That's all well and good if you know what the dream is. Daniel didn't know what the dream was. But look how he does it. He speaks with wisdom and tact to Arioch. And if you remember in, in Daniel chapter 1, whenever Daniel protested and said that he didn't want to take the king's foot in the wine, well, he, he protested, but he did it with gentleness, and he did it with respect. And we're going to see time and time again in this book the wisdom and tact, the gentleness and respect in which Daniel conducts himself. He conducts himself in that way because he knows who God is and he trusts, he trusts that God, God is good. And now the problem that's been discovered in verse 5, that there's a whole squad of folk that's going to be put to death, now that that has come to Daniel's attention, look at what he does next. And we pick up in verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And these words are gold. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of the God forever and ever, Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So what has God been doing? All throughout the Old Testament, God has repeatedly shown his people and the nations around him that he is God, that he is in control, and that any hope in an earthly kingdom is surely futile. You know, all the way back in Genesis 12, whenever God calls Abram, he calls Abram and he calls him to, to, be, to be a blessing, not just for his people, but also to the surrounding nations. And Abram is blessed to be a blessing. And here we see the blessing that, uh, that was given to Abram now on the world stage in Babylon, not even just in Israel. This is in Babylon. This is on the world stage. The astrologers said that gods don't live among humans. But yet here is God, the King of kings, 
given Daniel a vision during the night of the king's dream. Here is God breaking, breaking into humanity with a supernatural solution. And you look at Daniel's response. He had no room for pride. He had only room for praise. You know, we don't see the contents of the prayers that, that Daniel and his friends prayed. And this is, this is the first ever prayer meeting in world history. It's recorded. But look at their joy. Look at their praise as they worship God together. He is the one who changes times and seasons. He is the one who deposes kings and raises up others. We're going to see that. He is the one who reveals to mankind what pagan gods could not. He is the one who intervenes in human affairs and the pagan gods could not intervene in human affairs. He is the one who hears the cries of his people. Pagan gods that don't even exist could not do that. He is the one who, who not only can interpret dreams, not only know what the dreamer is dreaming, but he is the one who can place the dream there in the very first place. You know, on the ground, this is a, this is a, a battle for an, an earthly kingdom, but, but in the air, in the spiritual realm, this is actually a battle between who is God and who is not. And the pagan gods are found out to be no gods at all because there is a God in heaven who is ruling and who is reigning and who is in control. And so what are we going to see? Well, we're going to see the God of heaven who is in control. We're going to see this played out in the earthly realm. So the futility of investing in worldly kingdoms for selfish gain is this. Sooner or later, our false gods, sooner or later, our, our idolatries are going to be revealed for what they are. And I wonder what some of the, the false gods or some of the idolatries that um, that, that, that lie in our hearts, that take up resonance, what they are. Because I tell you this, in the long run, they are not going to be able to give us what we ask of them. But there is a God who is in control. We're going to see that his kingdom is coming and has indeed come. And that will give us what we ask of him. So God also reveals the fragility of human power to secure a future. You know, to this point, we're not even told what this dream is. Some of you will know the dream, some of you won't know the dream, and that's okay, but now Daniel knows it. Now that Daniel knows it during the night, he goes to the king probably pretty quickly because he knows there's an impending death coming, and he goes to the king to explain it. But at the same time, if Daniel is wrong, he and his friends and the magic men of Babylon are dead. And the king asks Daniel, are you able to tell me my dream and interpret it? In verse 27, uh, Dan Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked, asked about. And so that, he actually falls in under that category as well. That's his job. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. What a humble guy. He is the one with the answered list dream. Millions of people on the planet but he says that no one can explain this kingdom mystery. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. You know, Daniel had authority that the king did not possess. And Daniel had wisdom that the king desperately needed. And you know, it wasn't through his own gifts. It wasn't through his own strength. It wasn't through his own impressiveness. But rather, it had been revealed to him by God. God was a source. And so again, remember, God had called his people to be a light to the nations they were blessed by God to bring blessing to all the other nations. And here it is playing out on the world stage. And Daniel said, no, 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 it's not me. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And we jump back into the text, verse 31. 
Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue. So this is a dream. I'm going to see it on the screen. A large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and, and its feet partly of clay, partly of iron, partly of clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, not, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What a weird dream. Have you ever dreamed as weird as that? This colossal statue with various metals in descending order of value, from the head of gold to the feet made of iron and clay. And for any structural engineers in here, do we have anyone studying structural engineering? Any hands up? Okay, if none, do we actually have any structural engineers in, in the room tonight? Do we have any engineers in the room tonight? Yeah. Okay, come on, there we go. It seems that structural engineering is not the one to go for, guys. I don't know what, what is. But you'll quickly identify the, the weak point. The feet made out of a mixture of iron and clay, or, or iron and pottery. And I don't know if you knew this, but iron and clay do not mix. The part of the statue that you would expect to be the strongest is in fact the least structurally sound. It's a, a flaky, a crumbling foundation. And look at this, a stone comes in from the outside, it's like 10-pin bowling, and it strikes the feet, and the statue is toppled and destroyed. But it's not only just destroyed and broken into pieces, it's blown away. It's like chaff in the wind. Nothing is left. But yet the stone begins to grow and it becomes a mountain and it fills the whole earth. And no wonder Nebuchadnezzar was troubled. And I only thought my dreams were eccentric. And only this morning I was driving around the M50 and I realized what I'd been dreaming last night. That I, 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 had, I was in church and I was preaching and it was really, really rainy. And the roof had a leak. And the rain started to come down through the, through the roof. And I'm sitting wondering why everyone else is getting up to leave and move to another room. And no one would stay while I was speaking. And so I'm sitting driving in the M50 wondering, what on earth am I dreaming about? What on earth did I even eat last night? Nebuchadnezzar's dreams were eccentric, absolutely. But there is a, well, there is a crushing blow that's coming to him. And Daniel continues, verse 36, and Daniel says, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. And he goes on to say, your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Wow, do you notice what Daniel is really saying to the king here? You are the head of, the gold, of gold, absolutely, but more than that, Daniel is pressing home the fragility of human power and the true source of authority. If you look in the text, it says the God of heaven has given you, the God of heaven has placed, or he has made. If there is ever a couple of sentences that the most powerful person in the world does not want to hear, this, this is it. But it gets worse. Look at verse 39. Look at them first two words in verse 39. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. 
Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks everything to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. And just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. So as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Wow. Church, I want to tell you that this is a prediction of history. But more than that, this is an interpretation of history. This is a theology of history. And Daniel knows it. If you look back in the text to verse 21 and 22, you see Daniel's cry of praise. He says he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. And he's going to do that. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. And he reveals deep and hidden things. And God has done that. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And the interpretation of history is this. The kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Empires rise and empires fall. Kings live and kings will die. But there's an eternal kingdom. And there's an enduring kingdom that is coming. But why is Nebuchadnezzar freaking out? And he is freaking out. Nebuchadnezzar can't articulate it, but he knows it. He sees it. The dazzling figure with feet of clay. Who is that? His kingdom is Babylon. It's his monument. Babylon is his structure. King Nebuchadnezzar has always wanted us. He's wanted to be the most powerful man in the world. He's wanted to build for himself his own kingdom. And he has made it. He's literally at the top. He is the single most powerful person in the world. But the dream comes and says to Nebuchadnezzar, you have got feet of clay. And as good as it looks, your foundation is weak. You have got feet of clay and it's flawed. And because of that, it is susceptible to collapse. And so in short, Nebuchadnezzar has basically been told, the only reason that you're on the throne is because the God of heaven has placed you there. Amen. Amen. The only reason that world powers are in place is because the God of heaven has allowed them to come to pass. The vision tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's days are numbered, that another kingdom is going to rise up and take its place. And so here we go. This is a history lesson from about six or seven hundred years before Christ to three to four hundred years into, into uh, AD, so to speak. Okay, here we go. The head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And the thing is, it's only going to last for another 70 years. His days are numbered. He has not got long left. The silver chest and arms are the Medo-Persian Empire, which you're going to actually come across later in the series. So once Babylon collapses, the Medo-Persians come in and will take their place. And then after the Medo-Persians, are going to come Alexander the Great, the great Greek Empire. And then after Alexander, there's going to come the great Roman Empire. And the great Roman Empire is, is going to come into power in 27 BC with a guy called Caesar Augustus. And you'll know in world history, you know in biblical history, you, you, you know in secular history that the Roman Empire fell. And now usually if we just take a quick look at it, we'll see that it's because the Visigoths sacked Rome and, and Rome fell. 
But actually, if you take a closer look at history, Rome fell not just because the Visigoths came and attacked Rome, but simply because of internal instability within Rome. Rome had feet of clay. And now look where the attention is given to, to Daniel's interpretation. Look at how, how truly fragile human power is. The second and third kingdoms are just mentioned in passing. They're mentioned in one sentence. Daniel's focus has turned to the fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom is depicted by the fragility of human power. Combining this massive, massive strength, iron, with a disturbing weakness. The clay, a crushing power with no cohesion. And what's most disturbing to King Nebuchadnezzar, them first two words again, verse 39, after you. I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar even heard anything after that. He is as fleeting as the days are short. His days are numbered and his kingdom will not last. And so what God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar here in the text, he is saying to every single one of us today, if you build your kingdom on anything other than me, it is coming down. Do you have a head of gold and feet of clay? Do you have a head of gold and feet of clay? I'll tell you this, you do. If the kingdom that you're building is popularity, if it's popularity because you'll be scared by what people will say, maybe the kingdom that you're building is money, and if it is, you're going to be scared by the economy, you're going to be scared by market trends, you're going to be scared by RTE news, If the kingdom you're building is, is your looks, the image you want to present, you're going to be scared by the mirror. But you're also going to be scared by other people's Instagram. You're going to be scared by not having what other people have. I tell you this, if you build your life on anything other than Christ, and this is what God is saying, God is saying, if you build your life on anything other than me, it is coming down. That's the long and the short of it. God is saying, someday my kingdom is going to come and it will smash all the kingdoms of the world. The fragility of human power to secure our future is this. We cannot. We cannot secure our future. Your bank account cannot secure your future. Your college degree cannot secure your future. Your job cannot secure your future. And in 2023, we're at a, a shaky stage economically. You see, the tech firms with a lot, of their, a lot of their headquarters here in Dublin and Ireland, and not say why they're here, but they're here, and, and they supply a pile of jobs, and, and slowly but surely, a lot of them are beginning to cut jobs. I know people here who's going to find out in March and April whether their job is secure or not, and that's the reality of the world we're living in. It might be secure one year, but the next year it may not be. For other people, their contracts are potentially coming to an end, and they may need to move to another country. I tell you this, if your security is lying in your job, then you're going to suffer at some point down the line. If your security is lying in your bank account, well, it will not bring you satisfaction. It will not bring you happiness. It will not bring you the security that you need in life. If your security lies in your health care, if your security lies in the fact that you're healthy and you don't even have health care, you're in trouble. If you build your life on anything other than me, this is what God is saying. It's coming down. And it won't endure. It is here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's blown like a flower in the field. And so what's the meaning of the dream? The meaning of the dream is this. Everybody is building a kingdom. You're either building somebody else's kingdom or you're building your own. If you want to be a Christian in a hostile world, if you want to be a Christian in Dublin today, we need to look at our foundations. 
Because if we're building our kingdom on something with shaky foundations and that's coming down, that's going to crush us. But let's look about building our kingdom on a firm foundation. You know, God reveals the firm foundation of God's eternal kingdom means that we can actually serve in a temporary kingdom. And this is crucial. This is the key to the talk. The little rock that comes on the scene changes everything. We pick up in verse 44, if you want to look in the text again. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So, what about the rock? What about the rock? Where does the rock strike the statue? On its feet. The kingdom of iron mixed with clay. This is the fourth of the kingdoms. What is the fourth of the kingdoms? The, the Romans. You know, at just the right time in history, God sent his son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, born in Bethlehem during the reign of who? Of Caesar Augustus, emperor of Rome. Here is the very beginning of the establishment of an eternal kingdom that was prophesied hundreds of years before. but it is everything that the kingdoms of this world are, are not. Look in the text. It is indestructible. It's indestructible. God's going to set up a kingdom that's never going to be destroyed. It's final. It'll, never be, it'll not be left to another people. It's God's kingdom. There aren't going to be a, another kingdom that comes and takes over. There's going to be no other rule and reign. This is the kingdom that's going to last. It is overwhelming. It's going to break in pieces every other kingdom. It's supernatural, and it's a kingdom that's not cut out by human hands. It has a divine source. You know, and I hope that brings comfort in a world that is plagued by wars and rumors of wars. You only need to look back in human history at the number of wars in the last century. Even while wars rage on on this earth, there is a kingdom that is in fact here that is in fact indestructible. But you look at the irony of the, of the substance. It's a rock. The rock is the least valuable of any of these substances. But isn't this upside down nature of the kingdom of God? Poor in the eyes of the world. I don't know about you, I want to be the goal. I'm pretty sure that's the most valuable. Sure, I want to be iron, but that's the strongest, but Want to be gold? That's the most valuable. That's great. What a great kingdom. And then this little, this little rock comes rolling in and topples it. You know, central to the preaching of Jesus was his announcement that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, Jesus was, was baptized by John the Baptist. And after he got baptized, he went out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights. And he was tested by Satan. And whenever he came back, he began his, his ministry. And as he began his ministry, his ministry was this. It was really short. It was this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He goes on to say, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus traveled throughout the promised land, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So if there was ever, if there was ever any hope in the Old Testament that God would establish an indestructible kingdom, 
Jesus announced that he was bringing it. He was the promised son of David. He was the stone to overcome the wicked and all the earthly kingdoms. And I want to turn to, to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to read what Peter says about Jesus. 1 Peter 2 says, As you come to him, him being Christ, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, and this, this is what Peter is saying to us, the church, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. That is Christ, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who puts trust in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, I tell you this, if you're a follower of Jesus today, this stone is precious. Your relationship with Christ is precious. It is a chosen and precious cornerstone. Christ is your cornerstone. He is a firm foundation. But it goes on to say, uh, to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it's also a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, then, then I tell you this, this stone that has toppled all these kingdoms, this stone is actually a stumbling stone. It is a stone that you're going to stumble over. So we try to apply the gospel to Daniel chapter 2. We see in verse 11 that the, that the gods do not live among the humans according to the according to the astrologers and co. But we know that God incarnate and the person of Jesus will one day live and walk among, among humans. And not only that, he would put his spirit, his empowering presence in humans. To you that love and follow Jesus, you have the spirit of God living and dwelling inside of you. The astrologers said that gods do not live among humans. I want to tell you, they are wrong. If you follow Jesus today, God lives in you and he is on you. And more than that, Daniel was, Daniel was willing to risk his life for his friends. But he was also willing to risk his life for his enemies. Jesus is going to be the greater Daniel. So Jesus is a living stone, but Jesus is a greater Daniel. Daniel was willing to risk his life for, for his friends and, and even for the enemy empire but Jesus is going to be the one who gives his life for God's enemies. Jesus is the one that gives his life for God's enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus is a rock that is not cut out by human hands. He is the one that has come from heaven, that has established his kingdom here on earth, and his rule and his reign will endure forever. Amen. Amen. Well, what about Israel? What about God's people? They've been carried off into exile, but what about them? What's going to happen to them? They hear this revelation and, and they know that the kingdom of God is coming, but it's not coming as soon as Babylon is off the political scene. They're going to have to wait. And then what about us? So often God's people, and when I say God's people, I mean we, so often we suffer from an if-only complex. So if only Babylon was gone, then all will be better. Whenever Babylon is out of the picture, the next, the next group, they'll be better. 
If only a different government is established, then we'll really thrive. If we get the current ones out of power and the next guy's in, it'll, it'll be better. Or if only we were a Christian nation, things would be better. If only this cultural moment passes, then we'll be grand. Or if only society's obsession with gender and identity passes, then we'll just be able to breathe easy again, just get on with life. We suffer from this if-only complex, thinking that the next thing is going to be better. That's not the case at all. But it's not also to rob us of our hope, but it should put everything into perspective. What do you do in the waiting? What do you do in the less-than-ideal circumstances that, that, that you're facing? Look at the quote behind me on the screen. So Daniel interprets the king's dream. He tells him what the story is. He saves the day. He gets the reward. But the point is not merely that Daniel and his friends got promotion, but also that they continued in the political service, civil service of a king that they now knew to be a head of gold with feet of clay. They went back to work. They didn't isolate themselves in a a little hub for safety. If you think about it, Daniel knows what the end story is, and he didn't just retreat and isolate himself and and wait for the kingdom to come. He didn't just hunker down and say, right, well, we'll weather the storm in a few hundred years. It's all going to be good. They didn't retreat. Instead, they turned up. And in this supernatural encounter that involved dreams and visions and divine revelation, probably more than we will ever receive, what was the outcome? They went back to work. They got on with the job. They got on with the job that they were, in fact, trained for. So we're not told at all if Daniel and his friends were able to meet together for prayer on a weekly basis. We don't know what, what the outcome was and, and their week, week, weekly rhythms, but we do know that they derived courage and strength in God through these tests that would enable them to face tougher tests down the line. If you come back the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear about a, fl- a flaming furnace that the lads end up going into. You're going to hear about Daniel and the lion's den. You're going to hear about tougher tests. But Daniel, Daniel's strength in his mettle was, oh, it, was, uh, it was resolved through this test. But for us, there's going to be a tension that each and every one of us are going to have to live for as I, as I close. If we're going to be followers of Jesus in a hostile culture, if we're going to be followers of Jesus in Dublin, then we're going to be living in a temporary kingdom, having confidence in the eternal kingdom. And this should give us confidence. This should give us confidence to get on with our work, get on with our job, get back to doing what we do best, knowing that even if we serve in a less than ideal circumstance, that we're serving the King of Kings, who's got an eternal kingdom, whose rule and reign will not end. And so I want to encourage you, church, serve the city of man, serve the city of Dublin for the sake of the city of God. Can you do that this week? Serve the temporary because you know the end story. You know that God's rule and reign will be eternal. Serve the city of Dublin for the sake of the city of God. God reveals that his kingdom alone is eternal and all others will fall. Can I invite the worship team back up, please? And can I invite you to stand? We're going to pray. Um, God, I thank you for Daniel chapter 2. And as I look at the time, I recognize that that was long. But God, I I thank you that your word is truth. And I thank you, Lord, that we are a church that stands on your word, who proclaims your word. And I pray, Lord, that, that Lord, whenever whenever temptation comes for us to build our lives on anything other than you, Lord, would you show just how futile and how fragile they are. And Lord, may we be a people that build our lives on your firm foundation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.